So we're in our series called Spiritual Boot Camp, and we are looking at things that are necessary, foundational for us to grow as Christians. We've talked about Bible study and and prayer on the first two messages, and today we're going to talk about church. But first, I want to share something. I have viewed plenty of bad marriages over the years. Problems include infidelity, emotional and physical abuse, neglect, bitterness, unforgiveness, and a, a host of other maladies that, that create great wounds. I've dealt with marriages that have had issues with prostitutes, porn, same-sex relations, death of a child, financial crimes, drug and alcohol addictions. And these are all just within my family. You should see all the other things. (laughs) (laughs) But seriously, these these are really sad stories. Here's my point. In the face of all of these things, guess what I have never said? I have never said, you know what? Marriage is too hard. There's too much pain. Marriage isn't worth it. I've never said that. I haven't said that because the problem is not with the covenant of marriage. The problem is in the hearts of the individual and the sin that's acted upon and in the life of each of us. That's the problem. And when we operate in the flesh, what happens? Everything we touch gets tainted, including our family relationships. The answer has never been, chuck the idea of marriage. But it's transformed the heart. And the same is true for the church. You don't chuck the idea of the church. There's a growing sentiment that the church is on life support. Uh, Many critics would see the church as irrelevant, antiquated, boring, and if it's not boring, it's a three-ring circus. To many people, the church has hit really hard times, particularly in America. I mean, the press is not good. And the fiercest criticism comes from those within the church, those who are supposed to be on the same team, right? I mean, for confirmation, you could read John O'Keefe's work, 10 Reasons Why Your Church Sucks. There you go. That's for some encouragement. Or Dan Kimball's book, They Like Jesus But Not the Church. You know, the Romans thought that the Christians practiced cannibalism because they talked about eating of the flesh of Jesus and drinking his blood. Some thought that they were committing incest because they called each other brother and sister and went to love feasts. (laughs) Others thought they were atheists because they didn't have icons to worship God. I mean, the early church either needed a new marketing plan 
or it needed to get used to the idea that there were going to be critics. And it seems like we were advised somewhere in the New Testament that critics would always be a plenty when it comes to the church. Peter wrote about that in 1 Peter 4, 12. But as a part of the problem, we see that many of those even within the church are the fiercest critics. And so they surmise, what good is it? It has very little value. I'm certainly not going to stand up here and deny issues with the church. I mean, I would agree with you that Christians can be the weirdest, goofiest bunch on the face of the earth. No question about that. I empathize with the disappointment and the hurt, but I'd like to propose not giving up on the church, that that cannot be an option for a serious follower of Christ, even though it's in vogue. You know, hey, I love Jesus, I just can't stand the church. How exactly can you love Jesus and disregard the church at the same time? I mean, we can certainly be dissatisfied, we can be wounded, we can even be ticked, but disregarding the very group that Jesus calls his bride seems incongruent. Karen Ward, a leader in the emergent church in Seattle, claims that 95% of the unchurched in her area have a favorable view of Jesus. She says, Jesus is not the problem, it's the church they dislike because they do not readily see the church living out his teachings. Well, the question I have is, if you have that many people who like Jesus, do you really think that the majority of those people are viewing the same Jesus of the Bible that calls sinners to repentance, who says the way is narrow, and who died for very real sins? Or is this kind of the Americanized hippie Jesus, you know, always smiling like you see on TV whenever there's movies about Jesus? Simply a good example, open-minded, spiritually ambiguous, rainbow-wearing nice guy. That's the new Jesus in vogue. What I'd like to do is make a case for seeing covenant participation in the church as an act of discipleship, as actually following Jesus. See, ultimately, I think every church has to kind of choose its own lane, and every person has to kind of choose their lane. Jesus said, by the way, that the lane is narrow, the road is narrow. That means that not everybody who names the name of Jesus or who finds themselves inside a church building that they are going to be in to serious discipleship. Now, they may be into the show. They may like coming and seeing their friends. You know, they may like yucking it up. They might like the, you know, smoke and mirrors and the entertainment. But I would suggest that the answer is not to widen the lane, not to dumb down discipleship, not to conform to the culture you know, for that all-elusive goal of being relevant and not being boring. I mean, it is tempting, by the way, to display some show-stopping entertainment 
to program ourselves into oblivion to address that gap between what people want and what the church is called to be. Church isn't boring because we don't show enough film clips. Church is boring to some simply because somewhere along the line, we have neutered the church from its significance. Great value always precedes devotion. And the reason to value the church, I can't make it any simpler than this, is because Jesus loves the church. Jesus died for the church. And Jesus is passionate about his church. What other reason do we need? It would seem an odd position for a follower of Christ to denigrate that which Jesus loves, not denying the issues. The claim is not that the church is without problems, but rather in the midst of the struggles that we address, not that we put our head in the sand, in the midst of all that, the church still has great value. Just like you work hard on the issues of marriage, I do it knowing that the marriage has great value. See, the church is unlike any other entity. The reason we get so disappointed, I think, when it fails, when we get hurt by it, is because we intuitively understand that it's got to be better than this. Jesus has called the church to be something supernatural, something different than any other entity. Why am I not experiencing this? I think that's why people get hurt because we know it's supposed to be something great, and not great in terms of bodies, bucks, and buildings. That has never been the measurement, and it's still not. Church, in fact, is so wonderful that there are several metaphors that describe the church. Can't just keep it to one. The church is a flock because of its reliance upon the shepherd to lead and feed it. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, in Luke 12, 32. The church is like a body where the, its members are mutually dependent upon one another, and its head is Christ. Ephesians 4, 16 says, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The church is a bride why? Because Jesus cherishes the bride, loves and adores the church. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present yourself as a pure virgin to Christ. And the church is like a stalwart, a, a, a building, strong in its character, clear in its purpose. You yourselves, the living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. See, the relationships that we share in the body of Christ will ultimately prove more interconnected than a physical body, more comforting than a father's embrace, more collegial than brotherly love, more resilient than a stone house. That's the church. There's nothing like it on earth. And because it has its great value like this, 
and great importance, all Christians are to consider what their covenant participation is to be in a local church. And by covenant, what I mean by that is that there is a, there's a, there's a sense of, of discipleship and kingdom objectives that we are responsible for that come from God, that we are ultimately responsible to God for these things. And not because we're forced, not because we're coerced, not because we signed on the dotted line, not because we're made to feel guilty by some spiritual leader, not because we're manipulated, not because of some sense of loyalty that's man-made that people put upon us. It says in 1 Chronicles 29.9 when David was building the temple, I love these words, then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly. For with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. What that tells me, this is an inside work. See, I never have felt as a passion, say never, but I try to, if I get this feeling, I try to say no, that's not the spirit of God. If I have to kind of make you feel guilty to get into submission to God or, or you know, coerce, that's not God. That's man trying to control. That's, you know, a church wielding its authority in a way that is not good. Willingly, whole heart offered, they rejoiced. Notice why they participated. They did it as unto the Lord here in 1 Chronicles 29.9. They didn't sacrifice for the temple because David was hip and cool or because, you know, the temple had great children or youth programs, but because they understood the value of the temple to the nation. And therefore, they were willing to just do whatever they could to make this happen. The people were glad to give, and they did so with their hearts overflowing without coercion or manipulation. And that's the spirit that we desire in the church. Freely, willingly, with a whole heart. See, I don't own you. This church doesn't own you. I I never want to speak of even this as my church. It's not. It's God's church. I'm a steward of all that he's given me, just like you're a steward of your time, treasure, and talent. And we freely give to the Lord out of hearts that are overflowing. Just leave it at that. If you need to be spanked into submission, guilted, you know, got a sign on this to make sure you do your duty, something's wrong. I mean, if my wife has to remind me every day, hey, don't forget what you said on that altar, something's wrong at that point. Submission to leaders is not blind loyalty. It's a willingness to do whatever it takes to equip, to empower believers to utilize their God-given gifts to advance the kingdom of Christ. It's not getting everyone in lockstep with the leaders, you know, like little robots just follow the leader here, okay? That's uniformity, not unity. See, unity is where we can disagree about some things, but we still are focused on the main thing. That, to me, is unity. You have a diverse group of people, a diverse amount of opinions, but we're agreed on the terms of the gospel, we're agreed on our mission, and we're going to work together to accomplish that. 
That is biblical unity. Not that you agree on every jot and tittle of doctrine. You agree on, you know, every little lifestyle choice that you have to make. If I have to write out for you, you shouldn't drink, you shouldn't smoke, shouldn't do those things. That's not the Holy Spirit. That's just me trying to find control. Unity is we are, we are together on the main thing, and we allow people to live their own lives, but we're coming together. Listen, my wife and I don't even agree on everything, right? But there's still unity. We still love each other. We know why God has put us together. We try to keep the main thing the main thing. And the minute I try to control her or she tries to control me and get beyond those bounds and not honor the free will that's going on there, then there are issues, right? Because Lord knows we love to be told what to do by our spouses, don't we? See, every Christian has to come to terms with the value of the church and consider their covenant participation, just like in marriage. The value of marriage, listen, is not determined by my personal experience. I realize, first of all, why God made marriage and what its purpose is. And if we lose the value, then all we have in our marriage is our personal experiences that are going to fluctuate depending on the circumstances, and I'm going to lose the value of it. Janet and I, a couple times, first five years of the marriage, I wasn't sure which way it was going to go. Because the personal experiences were not positive. But the thing that kept us in the game was we understood. We made this covenant before a couple hundred people. And our ultimate responsibility was to God. Because I'll tell you, I'm not feeling it with you, and you're not feeling it with me. But that kept us together in those hard times, and now we can certainly enjoy it. I told her after we spent two weeks in Florida about a month ago, I said, 37 years, and we enjoyed being together and alone for two weeks. That was awesome. And I just was praising God that it was just such an enjoyable time with this woman. That would have never happened if I'd have said the value is my own personal experience and I'm just not feeling it today. I could have easily given up. I would have missed out on so many years of enjoyment. My circumstances do not necessarily register the value for which something was made. Listen, if I try to swallow a Rolex watch, I will probably view that is not a very pleasant experience. And you'll probably despise Rolex watches. But does that change the value of a Rolex watch? It's still valuable, even though I might misuse it. Jesus loves the church, died for the church. In fact, he said, I will build my church and get this, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I doubt that the so-called experts who said that preaching the word of God, especially verse by verse, man, that you are a dinosaur. And those 
experts who said the church is dead. I don't think they're going to make Jesus a liar. I would submit that anyone who calls himself a Christian must view their covenant participation in a local assembly as a matter of discipleship, accountability, and yes, if you'll allow me to even use the word submission, I mean that in the best way possible. You know, when individuals repented and believed in Christ, they were baptized and added to the church. More than simply living out some private commitment to Christ, this meant joining together with other believers in a local assembly and devoting themselves, Acts tells us 2.42, to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer. We find in 1 Timothy 5, Paul referring to a list of widows eligible for financial support. Well, to be able to separate widows from the rest of the congregation suggests that there's some recognition of who's even in the congregation, right? And when Jesus, or excuse me, when Luke refers in Acts to 3,000 being added to the church, it would seem odd that a definite number was being added to an indefinite number, as if no membership was recognizable. And when a believer moved to another city, his church often wrote a letter of commendation to his new church, as with Apollos in Acts 18.27. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. In 1 Corinthians 14.23, Paul says, if the whole church comes together in one place, how would the leaders know if the whole church had come together unless they could identify who the church was? There had to be some kind of relationships established. Discipleship is at its essence. The commitment to enter into long-term relationships for transformation. That's the essence of the church experience. Now, today, we view the church typically as a consumer, right? That I'm going to go and get these services presented by this franchise. And if I don't get the services, I'm going to go elsewhere. That that idea is really foreign to the Scripture. It's entering into long-term relationships for the purpose of transformation. It's interesting, too, that leadership and submission have little or no meaning without some kind of covenant commitment and participation. For instance, listen to this instruction given to elders in 1 Peter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Glory. And then in Hebrews 13, 17, it says to remember or obey your leaders. Submit to them. Well, Who are your leaders if you are not associated with a local assembly? I mean, the one who has refused to be a covenant participant in a local church 
has no leaders to submit to. We have this idea that the early church was kind of this loosey-goosey bunch of people just, you know, waiting around for the Holy Spirit to move. No organization, no authority structure. And it's simply not the case. God has designed believers to be a part of an identifiable local body of believers to accomplish the mission that he has given it. And we are bound together by the spiritual realities of Christ, by a a common covenant to a local expression of the body of Christ. I mean, when one reads the the, the New Testament, we read these specific issues that the writers had to deal with in a particular body. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul told the local church there to quit suing each other. (laughs) Yeah, that would be a problem. Churches suing other churches or denominations. I mean, you can't do that. can't call yourself Christians and sue one another. In chapter 5, he tells them to deal with the case of immorality in the church. Yeah, that's right. You had to call people out for living in immorality, but they had to be in the church. And and Paul even says, if they're not of the church, you would expect that. But if they're in the church, you have to hold them accountable. In 1 Timothy 1, there's a case of two men who had their faith shipwrecked because they'd given up on some essentials of, of, of the faith, doctrine. And in 2 Thessalonians 3, you might be surprised to know that Paul was calling guys out who weren't working. And he was telling the church, don't help these people, all right? In fact, don't even associate with them. If they refuse to work, they're asking you to support them and their family. Tell them to get their butts out of the chair and go to work. That's in the Greek, get their butts out of the chair and go to work. Here's here's the reason why I bring this up. The idea of confronting, rebuking, dealing with these tough issues, that's all a part of this genuine, you know, covenant community. How would this be possible if all the Christians said, you know what, I'm accountable to no one? The church has no authority over me. I'm in no local assembly. I don't need the church. And yet, that is so in vogue today. I'm just spiritual, me and Jesus, personally. But I have no community covenant commitment. That's bull. From a serious discipleship perspective, being a covenant participant is a way for believers to welcome a process that holds us accountable to honor God as a holy community. And remember, by the way, Matthew 18, where it gives a, uh, three different steps where you, you, you confront a person individually, and then you take somebody else and you confront them if they're in sin. You, you want them to come and, and, um, and repent of a particular sin. We've had to do this on occasions, like with infidelity, things like that. But then the final one is if they refuse to listen, it says remove them from the congregation. Well, listen, how can you do that? <laughs> how can you do that if there's no recognizable church membership? recognizable congregation. The idea here is that you can't have a church with some unattached fashion. I mean, that that is foreign 
to how the Bible describes the church. So, what are we trying to get at? What are we calling people at CCC to? Can we agree on the terms of the gospel? Yes, okay. Then let us work together in helping one another advance the kingdom of God. Loving well those around us. Serving our community. The best thing about this church is what you do outside these walls. We serve our community. We go where the gospel has not been heard, and we support those who go where the gospel has not been heard. We enter into vulnerable community with one another and building each other up, loving each other. Listen, every ministry team that CCC has, from a small group to the worship team to Sunday school classes, all of these are just an excuse to establish meaningful relationships, to build healthy relationships to love well, to use our gifts. But we live in a culture, and I'll I'll add a church culture, that seems to say, you know, it's dying, that church. You better just be grateful that people show up once a month. You better be thankful that you just have 20% that are willing to serve. You better be grateful that 1.8% of a Christian's income on average is given Well, I guess I'm not settling for that. And I don't think we're asked to settle for the norm of what the culture says or what the typical church does. Coming to Christ is an invitation to give our lives and our whole being for his glory and for his service. And listen, all of us have areas in our own life, do we not? That we, that we struggle in, where following Jesus is hard. That's why the path is narrow. Our passions, our, our family connections, our, our, our friendships, the culture, it kind of can create this centrifugal force pulling us away from being a faithful disciple. That even gives us more reason why we need one another. We need to be encouraged. We need to be admonished to stay on the path. As a pastor, my heart skips a beat when I read a passage like this in Revelation 2. Speaking to a church, it says this. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Listen, there are some verses that just stop you in your tracks and you're saying, whoa. If we trifle with his commands, twist the scripture to our own ends. If we deny his promptings too long, He will remove the church from out of its place. This has nothing to do with salvation. It has to do with usefulness. The organization may remain, but the life-giving dynamic and witness is going to be removed. An assembly of people who once were desperate for God 
are now simply just a bunch of religious people in a building. And it doesn't matter how many people are in the building, it can still be dead as a doornail. It doesn't matter what kind of music is going on the stage, what kind of dog and pony show you have going on that people love and get excited about. That is not the heart of the church. When a church sells out its biblical principles, they see that as disposable. It's no longer listening to Christ. He will leave them to their own devices and move on to another group that is truly abiding in him. We're talking about usefulness. And so Christ walks among us. May he find faithful participants, wholly given to him, loving one another, serving on our mission. God, help Christ Community Church be faithful.